0: thank you that it is true for endless days, endless days, we will sing your praise. The concept is too much for, even, uh, for us to even fathom right now. Uh, we're so used to everything coming to an end, everything being temporal, and yet your word promises an eternity of joy and thanksgiving and, uh, and pure bliss awaiting us. All because of the work of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray and whose name we gather tonight. May you speak to us now from your word, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go ahead and be seated, gang. Good to have you here tonight. Again, welcome to Epiphany. My name is Eric. I'm the pastor here. Thank you, worship team, for leading us in worship again in such a, just a powerful, dynamic way. It's, I love, love, love hearing all of you singing out at the top of your lungs together. It's just beautiful to hear the body of Christ worshiping together. It's awesome. Uh, it's one of the best things that has happened since we've really moved down here, is to be able to hear the worship of the saints together. So, uh, so this week, uh, anybody know what this week is? Palm Sunday, Uh, this is the day traditionally in the church calendar that we, um, well, we basically observe Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which is a sort of strange name for the event because um, as we see throughout the rest of this week, what may begin in triumph or seeming like triumph, him walking in the praises of uh, so many in Jerusalem ends, of course, in his death. But Uh, Nonetheless, we call it the triumphal entry because he does declare himself to be king on this day some 2,000 years ago, and everybody knew it. Uh, Well, the passage we're going to read tonight is what happens directly after that in John's gospel, in John chapter 12. What happens directly following this moment? And so we're going to pick it up at John chapter 12, verses 20 through 36. You can follow along with the words on the screen. It reads like this. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. The feast being spoken about here is the Passover. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. One who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from. So, who is this Son of Man? That's, that's the question. Who is the real Jesus? What, unquote, real Jesus? Uh, for a while now, our culture has been digging into that question in all sorts of forms, all sorts of ways. So, uh, any of you have heard of Reza Aslan? You know, that's a show on CNN, I think, for a while. You wrote a book uh, trying to uncover who the real Jesus was. The historical Jesus entitled Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth, and it quickly shot in the New York Times bestseller list. Essentially, his take on Jesus was that he wasn't really the Jesus that Christians had been worshiping all these years that the New Testament talks about. Um, another skeptical scholar, Bart Ehrman, has written a number of books. He also, he actually at one time was a, confessing he was an evangelical, that's what he would say, an evangelical Christian. Uh, he He's written a number of books, too, now uh, essentially trying to debunk the traditional understanding of Jesus as uh, Messiah or somebody that is to be worshipped and praised, and he's been quite successful at it. Uh, CNN, I think this week, has a six-part series called Finding Jesus, Faith, Fact, and Forgery, which I've actually heard is pretty good, but I, know, I haven't seen it, so I can't vouch for it if it's full of heresy. I me. Mean, uh, and of course, the, the History Channel, um, in between documentaries about World War II, is almost always talking about Jesus. I mean, uh, that's pretty much the whole thing all the time. So so this fascination with Jesus uh, certainly isn't new. I mean, it's it's um, all throughout history. Skeptics and believers alike have mined the pages of the, of the Bible. Any other historical documents they They've dug into archaeological uh, fact-finding missions to just try and shed more light on who exactly this Jewish carpenter really was. Was he what Peter and the apostles said he was? Or was this all some myth? Next question, who is this son of man? Who is the real Jesus? It goes back to the days of his public ministry. You see it in the text. This crowd is asking, and for good reason. Jesus has just entered into Jerusalem to great throngs of of praise and glory. It's Passover week, and so there are uh, hundreds of thousands of pilgrims from all over the world there to uh, celebrate this great feast that uh, observes God's deliverance of his people from bondage and slavery in Egypt. And as he takes up his seat on a donkey, which, by the way, is not necessarily a symbol of lowliness so often taught that way, um, kings did do that. As he as he sits on this donkey and rides into town, the crowds can't help themselves from shouting Hosanna to the Son of David, which was clearly a uh, a way of saying This is the Messiah. This is the long-awaited Savior of Israel. He's here. This is. I mean, it's clear. Everybody, the rumors are spreading like wildfire. That this is the guy. This is the Son of Man. And so people are saying, Well, what does that exactly mean? What does it mean that he's the Son of Man, that he's the Savior of the world? Fill us in. And so these Greek-speaking Jews who are visiting go, you know, might as well try and meet him. In, in their mind, by the way, at this time, there was one thing that this Messiah was going to do, and they were so excited about it. Just as God had delivered the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt, they were convinced that when the Messiah came, he would deliver his people Israel from slavery and bondage. Question on people's minds is, when are you like? What are you going to do? How are you going to do it? How are you going to dethrone Rome? And maybe if I get close enough to you, maybe I can get a seat in your administration or something. That's what's going on here, and so it makes complete sense to ask the question, "Who are you?" Well, the answers. Thankfully, not just here, but indeed here, he answers. And it is emphatically not what they're expecting. First of all, he says, okay, you want to know the real me? You want to know the real Jesus? I'll tell you who the real Jesus is. The real Jesus is a suffering Jesus. Now this, of course, is not what they want to hear. These Greek pilgrims were expecting, of course, power, strength, kick out Rome, all that stuff. But instead, it's such a strange response. As Jesus is told by Andrew and Philip, like, hey, these people want to speak to you. They want to know who you are. His first words are, the hour for the Son of Man, uh, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, if he had just stopped there, then that would have been exactly what they wanted to hear, and they could have filled their own meaning. Oh, I know, glorified these. He's going to be exalted to a throne. He's Yes, he's going to be you'd be. But he doesn't stop there. Instead, he says some really weird stuff. Verse 24. Truly, truly. It's another way of saying, listen up, gang. I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. That's not all. That's not all. He says, uh, the text says that he is greatly troubled, deeply agitated. And why? Because he knows to God by being, quote, lifted up, which we now know, of course, is the cross. On top of all that, Jesus says that that is what will bring glory to the Father. And so the only understandable response to such a view of Jesus, especially at that time, would have been something like, Talking about. You see this with his closest disciples right up until the moment he's arrested, even after he's arrested, they, he, they do not get it. They, they say, stop speaking in riddles Anytime he talks about being arrested or dying. Peter even goes so far to rebuke him for speaking as if he would really die, proclaiming to the Lord, to God, far be it from you, Lord, This shall never happen to you, thus saith the Peter. I mean, like, Peter absolutely thinks he knows the plan, and the plan does not involve any of the suffering nonsense that Jesus insists on talking about. It is hard to accept the idea of a suffering God. A weak God. It doesn't fit into our way of thinking. Some like Peter before us have tried to find ways of minimizing or denying that such purposeful suffering would have happened. uh, So, for example, Muslim doctrine officially teaches that Jesus did not die on the cross. Jesus is a prophet in Islam, but he is not a prophet that died on the cross. That would not have happened. So somehow he escaped. Some who claim to be Christians have supposed that Jesus actually didn't die on the cross and went on to live a married life to Mary Magdalene. There's actually, I think, a new movie. Joaquin Phoenix coming out that sort of at least alludes to that theory. Uh, this theory, by the way, has gotten a, a good bit of traction over the last of years, even though I'm telling you, I'm being straight up with the gang, there is 0.9% evidence for that at all. There's like literally no evidence at all, but it's uh, it's sort of, it's just gaining some traction. So uh, still others, even if they admit Jesus did die on the cross, say it didn't really have Value. It's just an accident of history that got blown out of proportion. Not Jesus. Jesus says, no, no. This is the very reason I'm here. The very reason I'm here is to suffer and die for sinners. Like it or not, if you want the real Jesus, you gotta get a Jesus on the cross. You gotta get a suffering Jesus. You must see in me Jesus as one who is taking the punishment for your sins and their sins and everybody's sins. You must see In me, a perfect sacrifice being offered up to God. There's no way around it. That's the real Jesus. If you would see the real Jesus, you would see a real cross. In other words, if you'd see the real Jesus, you'd see a God who doesn't stand far away from your suffering and just sort of shout condolences to you like, hey, get well soon. I hope you're going to get better. No, Jesus is the God who gets down into the dirt, into the muck of your life and knows what it is to feel the suffering. another real Jesus, that's him. Albert Camus, the existentialist writer and philosopher, understood this. He wrote this, incidentally, I believe, before he ever became a Christian. There's some speculation that he did at the end of his life become a Christian. But uh, nonetheless, he writes about the significance, at least symbolically, of this Christ's character suffering, and he says this, Christ the God-man suffers too with patience. Evil and death can no longer be entirely imputed to him since he suffers and dies. The night on Golgotha is so important in the history of man only because in its shadows the divinity ostensibly abandoned its traditional privilege and lived through to the end, despair included, the agony of death. He's saying, you know, the, the fact that God presents himself this way in this story, even though I don't think he believed it at the time, actually is genius because now anytime you want to blame God for all the suffering in the world, you can't without seeing that he's willing to ignore it himself. So you want a real Jesus? you got you got to get a suffering Jesus. this just the way it is. Secondly, though, you, you also get a summoning Jesus. I mean, here's what I mean. As he explains his suffering, he invites those who wish to see him to join him on his cross-loaded road. He says, verse 25, whoever loses, loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. you ever thought about how bad a marketer Jesus is Thought about how he would drive a PR team absolutely nuts. I mean, here he's got a group of people that are like, "We want to follow you," and he's like, "Great, die." That's his answer: "You want to follow me? Pick up a cross." You can just see his his agents working behind the scenes, <laughs> tearing out their hair. This is the way to grow a movement, Jesus. Don't tell people that they get to die. Indeed, that message is not something we want to hear. I don't want to hear it. Man, I like to believe that I can crush it enough in my own strength that I just need a little Jesus to add on to my life. That's my natural tendency. I want to, My natural tendency is to see Jesus as just somebody that can give me a few more tips to make my life a little better. And I think that that's the way a lot of Christianity teaches Jesus, that he's almost like a spiritual life coach, that if you just do a few of the things he says, that no doubt your life will be happier, and more abundant, and more prosperous. We want that. But that's not the scenario of the Bible. The Bible doesn't say, hey, come to Jesus and get a second chance. The Bible says literally, come to Jesus, get a second life. Like you don't need a second chance. I mean, I hear forgiveness sometimes talked about as a second chance, and I'm like, that's rough, man. Because you know what I do with that second chance? I need a third chance and a fourth chance and a five-billionth chance. Like, I, the, the, the chances come to no end. But I, if I'm given a second life, which means I've been killed and been brought to new life, well, that changes the whole thing. That's, that's ballgame. That's the end of the story. It's a whole new story. So Jesus when he says this to these guys he's saying no, like when, I, when you come to me it means that everything I'm, I'm getting everything, I'm taking over everything. So Jesus, one of the real Jesus is the Jesus that says repent, turn back to me. Because our sin has put us in such a bind, we don't merely need repair, we need resurrection. So this looks like acknowledging regularly our desperate need for him to take over. It looks like admitting and confessing our sins. I mean, there's a reason. It's not just because it's some like historical thing. There's a reason that every week we confess our sins here. Why? Because we, we're sinners. And the Bible commands us to do it. The Bible commands us in James. It says it's good for us to do it. 1 John 1, 8 and 9 says, confess your sins uh, often and promises forgiveness to believers. And that is what it looks like to pick up a cross, to acknowledge that you can't do it. Anymore. That can be painful, folks. I mean, it is. There's, there's pain to that. In the book, uh, Glorious Ruin, there's a story about a young woman named Sarah and her family's very public fall from, from grace. Uh, she had grown up in a very high society family. Uh, Everything was prim and proper, at least on the outside. But on the inside, uh, her home was one of deep, deep constraint, Very, very locked down. Rules were extraordinarily important. Etiquette, very important. Her dad had an insane temper that would be set off at the slightest offense. And she says that when she would hear his portion, rumble up the driveway every day when he would come home, she would just run into the other room and hide because you never knew if today would be the day that he found the candy wrapper in the sofa cushion and just lost it. But then, Sarah went on to describe when her parents called a family meeting to tell the children that her father had done something and was going to have to pay. He embezzled much of their money turned out from a trust fund of one of his disabled clients, and he just broke down, wept on the couch as he told his story to his children and to his family. It broke him, and soon he was disbarred from practicing law. They would have to sell their, their home and their cars and move to the other side of town. Her mother had to go to work. Everything, she said, everything, quote, seemed to die. Whole life turned upside down, and yet what does she say comes as a result of the death? Acknowledging the problem. Quote In that depth, security, wealth, achievement, and identity, we found out that new life was born. She said, My dad was instantly better. He was happy. He chewed gum, which never happened before. And he wasn't always a jerk. that's what it looks like, coming clean, acknowledging you can do it, never could. Theologian, pastor, and chef, by the way, Robert Capon says it well, quote, trust him, and when you have done that, you are living the life of grace, no matter what happens to you in the course of that trusting, no matter how many waverings you may have, no matter how many suspicions that you have bought a poke with no pig in it, no matter how much heaviness and sadness your lapses, vices, indispositions, and bratty whining may cause you, you believe simply that somebody else by his death and resurrection has made it all right, and then you say, thank you, and shut up. At the very worst, he says, all you can be is dead, and for him who is the resurrection and the life, that makes you his covenant. That leads to the last sight we see when Jesus shows himself. You want another real Jesus? He's a saving Jesus. He's a saving Jesus. He tells us in this passage that because of his cross, that, quote, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Now, he is saying that because of what he is doing on the cross, that he is pronouncing victory over the forces of darkness, over the enemies of good and of God, And the result is that salvation is now for all who believe. He says in verse 32, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth on the cross, will draw all people to myself. Verse 26, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. His purpose, he says, was to die. But what was the purpose of the death? Say you and you and you and you and you and you and me and all you two. Just starting to experience that truth here. right? I mean, literally in the season. Winter is over. I'm sweating today, so we know spring exists. It's here. And what tells us spring? Life and allergies. But um, life, yes, life. So much life. And I remember especially seeing this. I was uh, I went to Minnesota for a year. Ago. For a year I lived in Minnesota and when my family first moved there, we moved into this uh, property, this house on an old farm. And so the plot of land was huge. And as a result, we had this gigantic, I mean gigantic yard. And I'm not, I mean, you know, I was a California kid. I wasn't one for yard work. It wasn't my jam, but I couldn't like let the grass just keep growing. And the fact is like in Minnesota, after all that moisture, when spring comes, that grass just like Oh, you know, it'll overwhelm you in two seconds, and you can't avoid it. So you have to mow the yard sometimes twice a week just to keep up on it. And I remember the, the first week, I mean, all I had was a push mower. It would take like an all-day thing, just like, hate my life, hate my life, hate my life, hate my life, you know. I just, oh, so, so prefer apartments for that. But, yeah, so, and I remember the first week I was there, total root from California. Never been a homeowner, never done any of this stuff before. There were there was this grass, but also there were these flower-looking things called dandelions. They were all throughout the grass. I mean, so many. And I was like, I'm not gonna pick them all. I'm not gonna go like spray them with whatever adults get to kill weeds. I'll just mow them. I'll just mow them. What could go wrong? No, I didn't have a grass catcher on my mower, so I was just like, you know, just spreading all that out. So the, those of you who are laughing knows, know exactly what happened as a result of this. Uh, the next day, it was beautiful, and the day after that, I no longer had a yard. I just had dandelions. I mean, they had just completely taken over, and we were renting the place. I felt so bad when the owner came back and visited. I was like, sorry, you your house. But I just, dandelions everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. Uh, and no matter what I tried to do, pull them up, they would come back stronger and stronger and stronger. It seemed that they were unstoppable. Jesus says that because, because he was mowed down, because he was killed on the cross, he's now created a community of people, drawn people from all over, from every tribe, tongue, and nation an unstoppable force in himself. That they will, that you will bear much fruit. It's not an option. It's a promise. It's going to happen, whether you know it or not, whether you're aware of it or not. It actually will happen most of the time when you're not aware. When even you think that you're not bearing any fruit, that's when he's doing his work. So the Jesus movement was not Today, just a group of 12 Jewish guys that we look back on historically and say, oh, that's an interesting little figment of history. No, the real Jesus movement is now spread to billions and billions and billions. And as we were talking earlier today with a few people, it's spreading faster than ever before in the world right now. It's like a bunch of dandelions everywhere. You can't stop it. That's what you get. you get the real Jesus, you get the God who loved you and gave himself for you. When you get the real Jesus, you get the God who pronounces you dead but raises you to new life through faith in Jesus Christ. When you get the real Jesus, you see the God who has saved you forever and you can take it to the bank. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the real Jesus. Thank you that you are not a God who stands apart from us and our challenges and our difficulty and our suffering, but you are a God who rushes in and sits with us, weeps with us, but doesn't just do that. You also call us to walk with you and journey with you. You would save us your own and bring us to a place where one day there will be no more suffering, no more tears, no more agony. But until that day, Father, until that day we continue to pray the prayer that our Savior gave us with one voice saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses